Hi, I'm Ray, and you're listening to Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, them, and she, her, and I'm coming to you from the unceded lands of the Awabakal and Waramai people. Today, I have the wonderful pleasure of talking to Bashir Gauss, writer, game designer, and cultural consultant whose works you may recognize from uh, D&D's Through the Radiant Citadel, which uh, came out last year, I believe. Um, It's a pleasure having you on the show, Bashir. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yeah, I'm Bashir Gauss. I'm a Desi Muslim American game designer, writer, etc., I've been working in the field since, like, 2019. You might also know me from, like, Kobold Press's Southland, or Rowan Rook and Deckard's Spire Sin, or uh, Paizo's uh, Impossible Lands Tanja, which was just announced, like, a couple of weeks ago, and will be coming out, I think, near the end of the year. Uh, uh, And a couple projects like that did some work for Critical Role Campaign 3. And, yeah, I've been working in the space for a while (laughs) Uh, or I've been working in space very broadly. Mm, yeah, 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 100%. Um, it's a pleasure having you here, and I can't wait to talk to you about your um, new game, uh, which we'll get to in a hot minute. But I wanted to start out with a question about how you first became interested in making uh, content for role-playing games or making role-playing games, um, and what ma- what led you to making the leap from player or like or, or distant observer, whichever may be relevant, into uh, into actual game maker. So there are basically two stories here for like going from playing games to kind of designing them and then going from like for home use and then going from designing them from for home use to designing them professionally uh the second of those the more recent one where which went into professionally is probably the more definitely the easier to explain uh in 2019 i had i knew a couple of people or who designed games professionally, uh, notably Erica Chappelle, who d- does like Flying Circus and some other indie games. And I really admired her work and the stuff she was putting out. I thought it was really cool. And um, like I was looking for a job change at the time. I was working in psychology, and the nature of my job meant that like I was getting injured at an unsustainable rate, and I was looking for something else to do. She had given me some advice on like starting my own first projects. I tried a couple of them. I liked how they turned out, and I went to Big Bad Con in uh, San Francisco, or it was wasn't in San Francisco at the time, but in the Bay Area in 2019, and that kind of launched everything because I met a huge number of people. I met. Audrey George was doing like a mentoring program for people looking to get into the field professionally. I met um Pam Pam, who was like one of the previous guests on the show. Um, yeah, longtime was... friend of the show, Pam. Yeah. Yeah. And like uh she's a good friend of mine and l- was hugely encouraging when I was first getting into this. I got my first contracts with like Kobold Press and uh, Rowan Rook and Deckard from there. Um, and that kind of launched everything where, like, I saw that this was a thing that was viable if I was willing to take a gamble on a career change. And I decided that I really wanted to go for it. This was something I really loved doing. If there was a shot at making it, like, making it work as a career, I wanted to take that shot. And so I just committed, uh, as hard as I could. 
and got to where I am now just by years, like four years of really committing to taking as many contracts as possible and working as broadly as I could and honing my skills. Um, the much funnier story is that it was because I've got my dad to get me the 3.5 starter set uh, when I was 10 and didn't really know what it was besides this is a nerd thing that I'm going to play with my brother and whichever of my friends I could bully into it. And because I was only getting these at like big events and birthdays, like the core books and stuff, it would take me two or three years to get the full core set. So for that first two or three years of playing D&D, we were basically making up most of the rules beyond what was in the course, the starter box or like whichever of the core books we had at the time as we went. We were improvising wildly. We were going with like um, bits from the miniature war game they had out at the time. They'd have the like bit fragmentary stats on the stat cards. And we were trying to figure out, well, how is this game supposed to play based on what we have and stuff like that? And so I ended up having to do a bunch of game design getting into the hobby because I wasn't getting in through the usual route of like, there is someone else who already knows the game who inducts you in, I was getting in just kind of fully self-taught um, until I was well into high school. And so I'd kind of gotten into the habit of designing stuff for my own game by then, and I just never got out of the habit. I just kept doing it whenever there was something that I didn't have at the time. Uh, rather than buying the book most of the time, I'd just try and make something. And a lot of the times it failed, and uh, I'd learn something from that, and sometimes it would work. Uh. Yeah, wow. I mean, both are pretty amazing stories. Um, I think you're not as uh, in, uh, uh, not as alone as you might think in in having had to teach it, uh, teach it yourself. But I definitely agree that the being indoctrinated by someone who knows more uh, is is the the more common way for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow, amazing, amazing. So, um, tell us about your new game, which I'm really excited to hear about. Um, I've been uh, watching your Twitter since you contacted me asking for this interview, um, and uh, the the initial concept sounded interesting, and then seeing your work on it as you're as you're tweeting about it has also been really cool. Uh, so, yeah, tell us about your game. Yeah, so I'm working on Guns Blazing, a original system RPG in an alternate version of the 1920s, uh, a bit like Diesel Punk Shadowrun, except we're basing uh, the supernatural elements off of Islamic stuff around jinn and fol- folkloric elements from around the world, rather than uh, spe- rather than the kind of eclectic, uh, high fantasy stuff that Shadowrun went for. Um, it focuses on the Islamic world where, and like the colonized world where you are international volunteers and freedom fighters and mercenaries and the like um, fighting against the big threats of the time, which are like for most of the world at the time, that's the colonial powers. That's England, the Dutch, the French, etc., as well as monsters, uh, as well as like unique monsters for the thing, for the setting. So there's, uh, embodiments of industrialized warfare, parasitic fungus monsters, um, based on like the way that, uh, based on kind of the extractive way that a lot of governments worked at the time. Um, there are, uh, there's like the oncoming realization of nuclear physics and just generally like 
a bunch of scientific revolutions in the time that become immensely more dangerous in the 20s and 30s uh, in various supernatural factions, just kind of literalizing these growing threats uh, to people and to the world as a whole um, in, in, the, in the setting. The system's an original one of my own design, which I was I'm... about to ask about uh, about the system. Um, yeah, so it's 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 an original one of your design. Um, what kind of influences have you taken from other games in 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 the mechanical context specifically? So there's a lot from the Genesis system uh, from mm -hmm. Fantasy Flight Games and from like Exalted and similar storyteller systems, as well as some DNA from Blades in the Dark. Uh, it's a dice pool system where you're building up successes uh, based on what you roll, and then you're instead of it being a flat out, did you succeed against this difficulty? You're spending it on success, but also on like what advantages come out of this role? Did you complicate complications that might, or did you negate complications that might be associated with it? Like, have you just pissed off your contact? They, you might get the information, and now they kind of hate you because you pressed on them too hard to get this information. Oh, so it's sort of um, getting rid of that. It's sort of like the way the four different kinds of dice work in um, in Fantasy Flight Star Wars game. Although it sounds yeah. like a probably not going to be using four different yeah. kinds of dice. <laughs> yeah, I I'm always... trying to do that without proprietary dice, because yeah, that yeah, was yeah. definitely one of the big obstacles for getting into FFG, is like Agreed. getting and interpreting the dice. So trying to make that work on just successes and allocating successes. It's that thing where you run into like a concept in, a, in, in game design where you're like, oh, I really like what this is doing, but I really hate the way that it does it. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, the, or the way we got there. Like, I often found interpreting those dice really, uh, really difficult the few times that I played. Um, but it's like clocks in, in Blades in the Dark as well. I often really found clocks um, restrictive to me. And that was really hard to deal with the fact that everybody was talking about how like amazing uh, they were. And I realized that it was because I was already doing clocks in my head, but without the codifying that clocks in, um, in Blades in the Dark uh, added. And so I was like, oh, that's why it's not working for me because I already do this. But if you're somebody that doesn't, um, already do that, then it becomes, then that becomes something that's really useful for changing up the narrative. Similarly, if you are not already giving consequences to stuff, those interpreting those dice might actually be really useful. Um, and mm -hmm. similarly with, uh, what, what you're describing with your design. Um, so yeah, I guess maybe, uh, let's talk a little bit more about that, like consequences, uh, thing. Yeah, and so what the because you already mentioned it's a dice pool mechanic. Um, so yeah, take us on. So yeah, consequences are generally going to come from either like the DM adjudicates a situation and goes like, Yeah, you're trying to do this thing that's normally pretty simple, but you're trying to do it without being seen or without pissing someone off, or like there's a time limit clock in the background. So this has like a complication rating of X, or this has these complications associated with it. And when you make the check, you choose where you're allocating your successes. So you can buy them off and succeed on the, on the check if you have a bunch of extra successes, but it's more likely that like, well, you have enough to get a partial success and then you can 
buy off some of these consequences, or you can go for everything you wanted, but also now, like, yeah, the colonial authorities are now looking for you, and they have a description of you, or, um, or, like, one of your al- one of your allies is just kind of out of favors they can burn for you, and you're going to need to do something big for them before they're willing to help you out anymore. Stuff like that. It's I, I um, really oh, love those examples that you're giving too, because like that feels really um, true to at the very least the fiction of uh, like more realistic kind of like resistance and spook narrative spook like like spy like british term um yeah. like like we're not looking at like james bond we're we're looking at like more real sort of like intelligent stuff even though we're going for a resistance movement here and it's like yeah sometimes the people that are aligned with you fucking hate you <laughs> yeah that's a huge part of guns blazing is just like one of the things that gets glossed over about a lot of these resistance movements, even the successful ones, is that it's not like a unified movement where everyone has one goal and is working together. Everyone has wildly different goals. There are a lot of movements in any given theater, uh, even with like, it's, it, it is an alternate history game, so we can, I can play fast and loose with it to some degree. But one of the things I want to get across is that like, to get anywhere, you're working with this vast array of people with very different interests. So, like, you'll have, at any point, like, you'll have straight-up nationalists. You will have um, more idealistic, like, reformist movements. You'll probably have some variety of socialist or communist or religious movement who is helping you out because you both want X oppressing power gone. Um, You have very different ideas of what happens after that. Or even if you're aligned with these, there's going to be broader international movements where a historical thing that happened a lot was that, you know, socialist and red movements in the colonized world, especially in Southeast Asia, would have, like, one idea of what this would involve, and then the movement back in Europe would be insistent on, it has to be atheist, it has to be this and that and the other thing, and you have... The people there are like, what? No, we're not doing any of that. We're we're I, here for the workers' liberation part, not the other bit. I recently watched a um small documentary, um from the people that made uh the Great War YouTube series, and then they made a World War Two sequel, which I can't remember the name of, where they go through like the week by week changes. Yeah. Oh, I um, love that o- over the real period. But they did a video recently talking about because now that they've completed both of those they talk a lot about like interwar stuff and i saw one where they're talking about this um i can't remember the exact name of where it was but it was a rebellion in morocco in the mountainous in one of the mountainous regions that was really hard uh, to the rift maybe the rift like, that was riff it about yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really hard to hard to manage and whatever. But the thing that is relevant to this conversation specifically about that is that when when the quote unquote leader of the Riff was making um communiques addressed outwardly to supporters in Europe or to uh France who they were trying to reassure, no no no, we're not gonna cause a French moroccan uprising we're only dealing with the spanish moroccan stuff we promise fingers crossed um it was very like um egalitarian like atheistic um idea of of the revolution and like oh i'm gonna modernize this country and then communiques that were intended for 
the people at home were very like were very grounded in what the language of the fight was for the average fighter and so it was a lot of like we've got to drive the christians out of our out of our muslim country um uh or our islamic country um and uh and yeah, I mean, I don't know how historically accurate that was. This was a 20 minute documentary. So, uh, but I found that really interesting. And that's interesting sort of here. You're talking about that too, how there's like same struggle, but like two different faces. And like, there's very much an idea that in order that's in, in the West, that socialist struggles need to be, uh, atheistic when that's not necessarily true. Yeah, and so you got these very different things united basically by circumstance more than anything else. This is really notable in India where, like, whenever the non-cooperation movement would get suspended, like, the pacifistic movement, like, that everyone remembers, would get suspended or rep repressed hard enough that it kind of went into abeyance for a while, you'd see all of these groups who were uh, continuing violent resistance, and even when it was on, they where they were still around, uh, who would kind of keep the fight going regardless, and who had very different ideas of what this would involve. So, like, um, the eventual, like, had the princely state of Hyderabad, for example, had a bunch of people uh, advocating for getting rid of the British, but the princely state itself wanted to stay independent and not join India or Pakistan uh, yeah. when things, like, when things settled. Partition wasn't a universally popular idea um, no <laughs> no it went bit like yeah it was extremely controversial and a lot of people died because of it um and it was kind of i wanted to make a game about the struggle for freedom and the like but i didn't want to um elide a lot of those darker points and tenser points and like these points of historical friction that i think especially in kind of anti-colonial media will sometimes get elided because there there isn't a great way to talk about them there isn't like you it's hard to go okay here's our fun story about like fight like here's our fun story about fighting the voc also five years from now a bunch of these people are going to start murdering each other over relatively minor political differences and it's going to be horrific and so it's yeah, hard I to manage yeah, I think of a uh, role playing a tabletop game actually gives kind of license for that that discussion to be easier. Um, I definitely feel like there is a bit of a push when writing a role playing game that has like all these factions and things uh, interacting. That there is a push towards we can make one of these factions or some of these factions more good than everyone else but they all need to have like an undercurrent of there's something that could go wrong here like here's the way this group uh is not perfect i think that mm -hmm. there's almost an acceptance with role-playing games that that's gonna be there if it's a game about like factions um yeah. you see this in warhammer 40k as like a really obvious uh example where everyone is bad in some way sometimes um 
Look, the invite. orcs have got it figured out. That's all that's I'm true. saying to guys the guys the, the, orc, the orcs are just <laughs> doing what comes naturally. Uh, that's what they that's what they were, were engineered and evolved for. That's true. Orcs are the only good faction, but they're not good guys by any yeah, means. Yeah, they're not good guys <laughs> if you're not an orc. <laughs> true, 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 yeah. true. But yeah, we also see it in things like Eclipse Phase, where mm-hmm. even like the, you know, the socialist factions often have like sort of a some like. Um, yeah, there's something going on there that's yeah. tense or is fodder for the thing. And part of the nature of role-playing games where, like, each table is going to be able to tailor the game to what their group is comfortable for and what their group needs is, I think, really potent for that. Because if you're not looking for, like, the hard examination of what does this look like in five years, you can just play the game as, like, we're going to be playing this as something like Wolfenstein or whatever, where yeah. we're going to fight monsters or um, fight the army or whatever, and it's going to be a fun time. But you can also, and like, there's a kind of a safety tool and calibration se- section in the book about setting this up and the conversations you need to have. Uh, you can also go much darker of like, you know, yeah, there there are very few, or there are no violent struggles for liberation that are, <laughs> clean in any Mm. meaningful sense it's they get unpleasant very quickly because it's on it is pretty much unavoidable not to that's one of the like big and positive draws of pacifism and one of the reasons why it's ideal when it works um is just because you can avoid like it is incredibly brutal to actually have to go through that fight for liberation in any context Mm. A hundred percent. I mean, that's a discussion that I've had with friends before talking about like, uh, you know, problems with, um, our, our country, Australia. And it's like, sort of like thinking for a minute, I don't think they're gonna, I don't think they, that the powers that be are going to respond to pacifism, but I also don't think that the vast majority of the Australian people are actually going to like put their lives on the line for a better future and i know that i definitely am not um and so it's like yeah talk a big game about uh violent struggle being the only way to make a better world but also i'm not willing to do that so like what does that actually mean in a in a broader context which is an interesting like self-discovery discussion thing (laughs) Yeah, and, like, sometimes also discussions about violent revolution can kind of elide what the consequences of, like, what mm. that's going to involve, in that it's a lot easier to be up for, like, um, yeah, it'll be clean and we'll fight the bad guys and then we'll create something new out of it, and it's a lot messier when you're talking about, okay, so, like, if you throw a grenade at that car, you don't actually know if the guy you're looking for is in there, or if mm. that's just going to be if someone else happened to be riding in there with him today, um, that's not a that's not necessarily a situation most groups are going to want to role play, but it's one you at least want to acknowledge when you're talking about revolutionary politics, which is like a lot of people are going to be would be collateral if you go full in on like what are the consequences of all of this. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But part of it is also you know you could scale back to like basically yeah, run this kind of like a first-person shooter campaign where you acknowledge that bad things happened, but you're not, or happen, and it's motivating what's going on, but you don't need to go all the way into, like, mm. these. this is the consequences of 
taking up arms if that's not something your group is up for. It's, but it is something that is going to at least be covered in the yeah. You have the the game touches yeah. on it, and inter- and you mentioned that there that there's actually um, calibration tools and safety tools rega- uh, related to that. And I'm just wondering uh, if you could expand on that a little bit more because I initially have some thoughts like about it and how it might relate to other game mechanics. So uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear yeah, what so- sort of calibration tools you're planning to include. Um, so the current plan is to run with, like, X cards and lines and veils as kind of built into your session zero for the game, and a list of topics that a game of guns blazing is probably going to include, and the things you need to cover for it. So, like, if you're getting into guns blazing, it's fairly reasonable to assume that your players are going to be in for some level of violence. They're playing a game where half the mechanics, more or less, are about tactical gunfights in the style of modern wargaming they're in for some like but that the fact that they're in for that doesn't mean they're in for like yeah they're like doesn't doesn't necessarily mean they're in for violence against civilians or violence against children your table may well just be better off going for yeah we're going to keep this like clean and action movie more or less um it's going to talk about things like historical atrocities and the nature of playing in a historical setting where if you're playing with actual history you have to figure out how are you dealing with the realities of the time with regard to like this is a pretty bigoted time to be around it's one where a lot of civil rights movements are uh kicking off and so you have to discuss with your players what are people comfortable with what's going to be fun for people how much do you want to keep this in the background versus have it be something like upfront that you have to deal with? Um, and I think it's kind of, if you're making a game like this, it's something you have a responsibility to do. And if you're, mm-hmm. because the other option basically is to elide it, to just kind of go, okay, we're playing in the twenties for like a Cthulhu style game, but we're going to ignore all of that background. And that just basically ends up with, I think, the issue that Steampunk had for a while, where you kind of just sanitize all the background and all the on, and present this clean image of what happened there, kind of out of a propaganda poster, where even if that's closer to what people are comfortable playing with, when you're talking about actual history, there's some duty to communicate what happened. Who built um, this railroad the to the stars? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's interesting because that sort of reminds me the talking about the like, um, how much of this, uh, the horribleness of the time do we want to include thing reminds me of the safety mechanics in, I don't even know if they're necessarily safety mechanics, but the setting calibration tools that, um, Good Society has, where it's like, yeah. oh, do we want to play with inverted gender roles? Do we want to play with no gender roles? Do we want to play with, like historically accurate gender roles what are people feeling uh and stuff like that um yeah i i think that that's really cool um and i think that that's like a good instinct like a good inclusion to have as well and and even if it's just like a list of here's all the stuff that we could be talking about how much of this do we not want to do i think that's really useful and Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're in good company design wise there Uh, so I guess my next question is, obviously you're going to Kickstarter with this. What kind, what is your Kickstarter, uh, program, program, 
program the right word? Or like the reward structure, or like what are, no. what are you looking to get out of it? I, I guess. I guess. What is? How is your Kickstarter project? Is the word I was looking for? Uh, structured, um, and and what are you looking to get funding for? So, for example, we talked about Navathum's End the other month. Uh, I think it was February that we were talking about Navathum's End, and that had obviously kickstarted uh, a few years ago to get a digital version of the game made, and now was kickstarting to go to print production, and so they were looking at like um you know, alterations they needed to make for that. How much of your game is ready and how much of it is coming from needs to be funded by this Kickstarter? So and the Kickstarter yeah. is funding a print run and then a lot of the stuff around the game design. So like art, uh, or more art, I should say, um, layout, professional editing, binding, um, stuff like that, and getting a full print run done. Um, I've I'm partnering with a I've got a printer printer and logistics company in mind and so it's the majority of the funds are going towards making that print run happen and making this a physical game that you can get and play uh beyond that I'm also trying to give um I have a few collaborators on as writers um and I'm trying to give like so when I got into the field in 2019 I got my start because a number of small companies like Rowan Rook and Deckard and Kobold Press were both willing to give writing opportunities to a guy whose total writing resume consisted of these two things I put up on itch one time. And I want to pay that forward and give other people the shot that I got. And so there are, uh, there are several new writers and several other experienced writers who I know and who like I trust to mess around with the setting I've created, who I'm bringing on to do aspects of the setting, especially aspects of the setting that I'm not necessarily the best person to do uh, to work on. So um, people to handle like the Philippines or other parts of Southeast Asia outside of the Muslim world or outside of India, people to handle like Hindu issues in India or mm. uh, stuff from other parts of India that I'm not familiar with. And I'm really looking forward to collaborating with other writers on the U.S. because I kind of have big plans setting-wise for what an alternate U.S. might look like. Like, one of the big themes I'm hoping to get across is kind of how fragile the history we got, we ended up with in real life was and how things could easily or feasibly have gone different ways even beyond like the the supernatural elements of the setting and so that's definitely something i'm hoping to uh collaborate with other writers on uh depending on stretch goals i may even be able to bring more new writers on board so i've got a second and a third tranche of writers who like i'm hoping to contract if this succeeds beyond my wildest expectations yeah. to just give as many people as possible that first shot that i got um yeah then... i mean that sounds pretty freaking amazing to be honest um you've actually reminded me of something that we kind of haven't talked too much about and that's the supernatural element of the setting so we've talked pretty thoroughly about the revolutionary aspect i guess my question about the supernatural like just as a jumping off point for us is that in a lot of these kinds of games it's a thing where the supernatural had disappeared from the world and then some cataclysmic event brings it back um is that the situation here or is it that this supernatural was always there and um, that's what makes this different or is it something else it's a little bit of like it had been in the background for a while and not particularly uh prevalent so like before the point of divergence which is in like the mid 18th century people might see a djinn 
once every so often, but it's brief encounters, etc. And then in the mid-18th century, um, so uh, a Persian inventor accidentally figures out how to, like, bridge the gap between the realms of humans and jinn and, like, make it big, big permanent gateways to, like, facilitate travel between. And so it kind of escalates from there as jinn become ever more prominent in larger and larger parts of the world and kind of spread out. And by the time the game is set in the 1920s, like, jinn are a pretty normal part of most populations. The guy serving your food at the local restaurant might be seven feet tall and made of fire. Also, that's Hamid. You've known him since you were five. Uh, it's not a big deal. Um, and so I like I'm kind that. of, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to tap into that, like, by the time the setting starts, a lot of the things we'd recognize as supernatural elements are now pretty normal to everyone in the setting. And the things people in setting, pe the things people in setting recognize as supernatural elements, some of those are things we find exceptionally strange. And some of those are things we know are later going to turn out to just be quirks of physics. So like in setting, nuclear power is broadly assumed to be some sort of weird magic. Um, right. It's... Yeah, it's the 20s, no one really knows what's going on yet. You've had some stuff like, historically, the Radium Girls and the like, where people have had horrific medical side effects from exposure to radioactive materials, or people have experimented with it and figured out some properties, which is going on here. But things like weaponization and using it for energy and the like are way off in the future, and it's extremely poorly understood. And so here... I'm just, it's I'm just imagining Mary Curie trying to convince a bunch of scientists in France, it's not a gin, it's a natural <laughs> phenomena. And they're like, no, I'm pretty sure it's gin. Yep. <laughs> basically, where, like, one of the starting adventures is basically someone's figured out, oh, exposure to radioactive materials has really bad health effects on people. And this is an extremely contentious thing, because basically the equivalent of, like, early 20th century um, occultists. So you had kind of a burst of occultism in the early 20th century in real, the real world with like positivism and a lot of people doing um, like eating mummies and stuff like that yeah. throughout the uh, yeah, uh, where this has kind of become a subject of some of that where people are experimenting with it or injecting it into themselves or trying to do weird stuff in both the realms of jinn where it's like Hey, it's a neat free energy source. I could probably use this for, for incredible uh, power. And in our realm where it's like, well, it's clearly some form of magic that's, you know, or some form of gin stuff that's naturally occurring on Earth. This is probably really cool and relates to these things I happen to believe um, and that are totally unrelated. And so it's a very politically charged thing to realize, no, that's a, that's a scientific phenomenon. Also, it's very poisonous. Um, yeah, well, um, fucking wild. So, yeah, you, yeah, that's wow, that's really interesting. Is there, is there an avenue for? So, you mentioned that some of your inspiration for this game was from, um, was from blades in the dark okay. and i'm just remembering how in blades of the dark most people most characters that you play are humans but there are also options uh like and and humans can be really weird like some humans look like demons um but they're all still humans and then there are non-human playbooks too which are sort of like oh if you have a character that almost dies maybe use one of these playbooks to have them come back so you have like the 
ghost machine and then you have like a vampire and then there's a third one which i can't quite remember um but is there an element are you only playing humans in this game or are you uh, can you play Jin or are Jin like non-playable you can play Jin. Uh, you can play most types of Jin. the game assumes that you are like vaguely humanoid and human sized in that like some Jin in legends and the like can get extremely large and would be difficult to work into the scope of the game um but you can play like you can play a djinn who can shift shapeshift into a jackal or into a bird along the lines of old legends you can play an ifrit and project fire from your hands and just kind of skip the part of the first person shooter gameplay where you bother getting a gun you can just shoot fire at people instead um you can play like right. things that uh you can play creatures from other um from like other traditions, like an Oswang, for example, which are kind of a Filipino vampire right. that drinks entrails with their tongue, um, and stuff like that, where you have a pretty wide variety of uh, mystical and mortal options, or like, yeah, mystical and human options available to you uh, with their own degrees of support. It ties into the character customization and progression in the game is closer to like how Exalted's charms work, if you're familiar with that, or how like world of darkness games generally set up their world uh, of darkness i'm familiar yeah with. where like you'll you'll be able to buy a pretty broad and flexible array of powers some permanent some activated that represent things like how your character is different from baseline humans so like celerity as a vampire or tweaks to your shape-shifting as a werewolf where here like the same perks that you would be using to get like doing a cool trick with a gun or wall running and jumping through windows and the like, or like being really good at organizing logistics uh, outside of a fight um, uh. would be used for turning would be used for, to represent. Yeah. You have a natural weapon that you can project at people in gouts of flame, or you can turn into a bird because you're a djinn or like you're a human who's particularly in tune with like, uh, with, the, with the realm of Jin, you've spent some time there or the like, and so you can talk to animals. You can't understand the animals, but the animals understand you. Oh, uh, neat. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned one aspect of the game that immediately sings to me, and that's the idea that you could play a character that's really good at logistics. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that I kind of uh, love in games about fighting is when you can be kind of an okay fighter but you can be really good at like setting up things in your favor so like i really enjoyed in d uh in uh dnd future which mm -hmm. is like for playing sci-fi 3.5 sci-fi stuff yeah um one of the advanced classes you could take was the tactician um mm -hmm. Or in, um, or like the warlord the, in four E, yeah, 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 like the exactly. good old lazy lord, or the um, or in what is the game called? I'm just trying to remember it. Or in in uh, only war, which is the uh, yeah, the forty k RPG game the that Guard. is about playing Imperial Guard. You can like be uh like officer who's like good at logistics, so that when your team has to roll yeah, on the logistics just, table, they get a better result. Yeah, just uh pumping all of your uh supply requisition rolls and getting weird and in incredible stuff out of there and 
driving your GM to no end of uh, annoyance. I mean, um, that logistics table in, in in Only War is pretty, like, wild in that you, like, roll on it and you can literally, because of the logistics of the Imperium are galactically vast, you can end up getting, like, ship supplies that don't make any sense. I believe one of the options is literally an entire Lehman Rust battle tank, and it's like, we needed winter clothing! What are we gonna do with a battle tank? We're, we're fighting in frigid ice caves! <laughs> We can't yeah. even drive the... None of us are tankers. And we got this. I guess we can turn it into a stove. Um, yeah, wow. Uh, so today, actually, I saw you um, working on uh, some tank designs for, for this <laughs> game. And you mentioned that they could be used as, like, bosses uh, in, in this role-playing game. But you also hinted at... There being a war game component? Uh, yes. So, Do you feel like um, talking about that briefly? Yeah. So uh, Erica Chappelle has uh, made a kind of free-to-play war game engine or free access war game engine called Repost um, as part of her latest like side project. And uh, as part of that, as kind of an addition to it, I'm making a uh, an adaptate. I'm making a guns blazing war game, which will like. If the Kickstarter does exceedingly well, there will be a bunch more for it. Um, but I don't know how well it's going to be doing when this episode releases, so I can't commit to anything yet. <laughs> but uh, it will have uh, it will basically be a kind of platoon scale war game for the setting of Guns Blazing, where you can play as like Mysore, Resistance Movements, the British, or one of the bespoke supernatural threats for the game, the Matjuj, who are um basically they're an Islamic like apocalyptic thing that here oh. is kind of an embodiment of industrialized warfare. They pop oh, wow. up as wars get really, really bad and then just kind of feed on that repurpose people they can get their hands on into like machine soldiers and oh, um, expand I'm the war indefinitely. Yeah. They kind of turn the people is grist for the machine for the machine of war thing into very literal people are parts for the machine of war. They are interchangeable and they will happily disassemble you and reassemble you into new weapons. Um, Boy, I can't wait, wait to play as the British so that everybody can have fun kicking my ass. I'm gonna make <laughs> so many blunders on purpose. I'm gonna get all these Australian soldiers killed for no reason. <laughs> uh, in, in British tradition. <laughs> Oof. Um, fantastic, fantastic! I, I'm so excited uh, for Guns Blazing, and I can't wait to uh, hear more. Yeah, as I said, I can't wait to hear more about uh, the this game, and I can't wait for it to go to Kickstarter. It's actually live on Kickstarter right now, um, as of the airing of this episode. Uh, it's about to go up. Uh, as of the recording. Um, yeah, so you're going you're going through... So starting on, like, the 26th of March, from memory, and when is the Kickstarter ending? Um, April 20, 28th, I believe? Yeah, so basically 30 days. Yep. Um, uh, 
So, yeah, if you're listening to this at any time in before April 28th, go and check it out on Kickstarter. Um, otherwise, uh, where can people find out more about uh, Guns Blazing and more about you as a game designer? You can find me on Twitter, uh, where I post periodically about my game design and about Guns Blazing. You can find Guns Blazing on Kickstarter, where updates for the game will be centralized. Fantastic. And you can find links to all of that down below in the description on this episode. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and talking to you. I'm, uh, I'm so glad that I got to meet you. Um, and I'm really looking forward to how your career, uh, evolves. Like the, so far you've done some amazing work and I think you're set, set, stepping out on a, on a right foot, right? Like you're so much of this, campaign is entwined in how can i bring more people into game design how can i bring more people up with me i think that's an amazing uh feat and i'm really looking forward to all the people that are going to get their start because of uh, your work um if you enjoyed listening to this episode please uh go and check out our other interviews um bashir it has been a pleasure it's been great farewell from the past i'm ray